Say good evening to everyone, and we're thankful to be able to be back again. Thankful for all the visitors and everyone that's come to be a part of this, and as was prayed in our prayer, that we hope that something that our soul needs tonight will be ministered to by the things that uh, that we have to say. Not trusting in my ability or the ability of the song leaders or the ability of anyone that gets up, but the ability of God to take our meager and humble acts to bring about great blessings in our life. We're studying about how to live in this present world. And this evening, for a little while, we want to study a subject that I've entitled The Tolerance of Jesus. We'll get there in just a minute. The Tolerance of Jesus. We're living in a world that's becoming more permissive every day. And as Christians speak out against this permissiveness that is in our society, a lot of times we get lectures from people about the tolerance of Jesus. You need to be more like Jesus. Didn't Jesus eat with publicans and sinners? What about that woman that the Pharisees accused? Didn't Jesus treat her in in, in a very merciful way? Aren't we supposed to love one another? And so we get these lectures concerning the tolerance of Jesus, and what we're going to do this evening are look at what I refer to as the tolerance passages of Jesus. And we're going to look at those passages so that we can have a clear understanding about the tolerance of Jesus. And we do want to be just like Jesus was. As we confront evil in this world, as we confront sin in this world, we want to have the same disposition towards that that Jesus did. And so we're going to look at these scriptures this evening to give us some insight into exactly what it meant whenever Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. What exactly did it mean whenever Jesus dealt with the adulterous woman? And what exactly did Jesus mean whenever He said, love your neighbor as yourself? The definition of tolerance has changed over the years. This is the definition of tolerance from a Webster's Dictionary in 1828. Tolerance was the power or the capacity of enduring something or the act of enduring. In other words, you didn't like it, you didn't want to accept it, but you just pretty much endured it. Like going to the dentist to get a tooth pulled. You know, you, you tolerate the pain till they can get that tooth out of there. You don't want to accept that pain. You don't want to live with that pain. But you'll tolerate that pain for just a little bit to try to achieve a greater good. And that is getting rid of the pain altogether. Well, whenever we look at the definition of tolerance today, tolerance has changed. No longer is it the act of enduring, but now it is the willingness to accept feelings, habits, or beliefs that are different from your own. So in other words, if I'm willing to be tolerant today, I need to be willing to accept accept other people's feelings and their habits and their beliefs, even though they're feelings, habits, and beliefs that I don't agree with that my conscience will not allow for me to accept. So if I'm tolerant, even though I don't agree with it, I need to accept that without saying anything in opposition, without any type of argumentation or any type of reasoning. We just need to keep our mouths shut and just be tolerant and live in peace. And a lot of times, again, we're referred to Jesus and the tolerance that He showed. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, how that Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. Don't you Christians know that? Jesus Himself ate with publicans and sinners. Jesus was accepting and tolerant of everyone. 
You know, I was listening to some pundits talk about uh, the occasion out in Colorado where the bakery didn't want to bake the cake for a same-gender wedding. And I was listening to some people debate it on TV, and there was one uh, person on there that sided. Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. Jesus would have made that cake. Not only would have Jesus made that cake, He'd have brought the wine also. <laughs> Give me a break. Jesus and the woman taken in adultery. Don't you mean Christians know that you don't, you're not perfect? And you don't have a right to say that anybody else is sinning. Because those Pharisees did it, and Jesus put them in their place. So you need to just be quiet. And just tolerate the rest of us. Don't you Christians remember what Jesus said, Love thy neighbor as thyself? Don't you want to be left alone just to live your life the way you want to live it? Well, then why don't y'all love us the same way and just leave us alone and let us live our life the way that we want to live it? Be accepting of our habits and our beliefs. Well, is that exactly what those Scriptures teach? Well, let's look at it. Well, let's look at it. You know, in a lot of instances concerning things, like a lot of things in our knowledge of the Bible, and we're not exempt from it either, we know just enough about it to be dangerous. Well, tonight, we want to look at these three texts and look at them closely and really understand the message in each of these so that we can know how to respond to those people who walk up to us and say, Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. How do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? Jesus condemned the Pharisees for calling somebody else wrong. How do we respond to that? Jesus said, love thy neighbor as thyself. How do we respond to that? So Jesus was accepting of everyone, their beliefs and their behaviors. Jesus showed it was wrong to make moral judgments and say something is wrong, someone is wrong because we all sin. And we're to live with one another the way Jesus teaches us and live and let live. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard that. He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And then from that, we're to conclude that Jesus would have made the cake and brought the wine. Well, let's look at it and see exactly what it means. Well, first of all, Matthew characterizes these people as tax collectors and sinners. Matthew, isn't that a little harsh? Calling those people sinners. And so we see here that the author of this text, Matthew, he denotes those people as tax collectors and sinners, as publicans and sinners. And then whenever we look at the Pharisees, whenever the Pharisees were talking to the disciples, they asked the question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So Matthew says they're tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees say that they're tax collectors and sinners. So what we see here is a, a, a determination between what's right and wrong. It was accepted by Matthew, it was accepted by the Pharisees, and as we're going to see here in just a moment, it was accepted by Jesus 
that these people were sinners. They were sinners. Now, whenever we go back to verse 11, I don't have it highlighted, notice that it happened as Jesus said at the table in the house that the tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Him. Jesus is just sitting there at the table. Did Jesus go seek the company of the tax collectors and the sinners, or did the tax collectors and the sinners seek the company of Jesus? That's important for us to understand. You see, Jesus was relating to these people, these tax collectors and sinners, not in their environment, on their terms, but rather they were coming into His environment on His terms. You know, sometimes people will quote this, well, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, and they'll use that as an excuse to go down to the local nightclub and play music and sing karaoke with their buddies. Is that what that means? That's not what that means. That doesn't mean that Jesus went out and participated in the activities of sinners. Jesus is just sitting there. And Jesus' light had shined so bright that those who were in darkness came to Him. Came to Him. And notice how Jesus characterizes these people. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So Matthew says they're tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees say they're tax collectors and sinners. Jesus says these people are sick. Now does that sound like Jesus is just sitting there and passively accepting the habits and the beliefs and the behaviors of these people? No, Jesus made a discrimination about these people too. He understood, yeah, these people are sinners. And I'm not going to sit here and passively accept their sin because you know what? These people didn't come to this table and sit down with me for me to passively accept their sin. Jesus said, I'm the physician. And these people that have come and sat down with me, they are sick people. And so he says in verse 13, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The word repentance means a change of mind from bad to good or a reformation of life. So as Jesus is sitting there at that table with those people around that table, what was Jesus' purpose in being there with them? Was it to show them acceptance? And show them a passive agreement of their habits and their beliefs and their behaviors? Or was it to try to change them from being bad people to good people? You see, what we find here is not a demonstration of 21st century tolerance. What we see here is the work of a Savior. The work of a Savior to try to take sick people and make them better. He stated His purpose explicitly. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When those sinners and those publicans sat down with Jesus at that table, they weren't receiving acceptance of their habits, beliefs, and behaviors. What they were receiving was the work of the physician to bring about repentance in their life. So if we're discussing with someone an issue and they tell us, well, Jesus ate with publicans and sinners, how do we respond to that? 
Here's the question you ask. Why did Jesus do that? Oh, He did it because He wanted to show acceptance. And then we say, well, since you brought up Jesus, let's turn to Matthew chapter 9 and let's just read that. And verse number 13 tells us why Jesus sat with publicans and sinners. To bring about repentance. To bring about repentance. No, Jesus wouldn't have made the cake. No, Jesus wouldn't have brought the wine. No, Jesus wouldn't have gone there. What we see here is Jesus shining His light and those in darkness being drawn to the light. And that's our responsibility to those people that are out there today that are living in sin, people who are espousing permissive and ungodly practices. Not to show them some type of passive acceptance, but to manifest light in hopes of drawing them in and leading them to repentance. So whenever we look at this tolerance passage of Jesus, Jesus was accepting of everyone. When they came to the table, He didn't say, No, you don't sit here, you're a sinner. He let them sit down. But whenever they were sitting there, He sought to change their beliefs and their behavior from bad to good. And that's what we should do. Whenever people who are hurting, whenever people who are in darkness come to us, we shouldn't just turn them away. But rather, we should have the same purpose that Jesus illustrates here. John chapter 8, verses 3 to 11, the tolerance passage concerning the Pharisee and the woman taken in adultery. The scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. Notice that they approach Jesus with this woman and they say, Jesus, or teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. This woman was an adulterer. There was no disputing. She was caught in the very act. And so what we have here is a person who is guilty, not by hearsay, but guilty because she was captured in the very act of adultery. And this woman was brought to Jesus for a purpose. Well, first of all, in verse number 5, they said, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? Now notice the question that's not asked. Is adultery a sin? Master, this woman was taken in adultery. Is adultery a sin? That's not the question that was asked. Because that was a question that didn't need to be asked. It was obvious to everyone on that occasion that adultery was a sin. And so the question that's asked here is, Here, Jesus, we have a woman that's caught in adultery in the very act. What do we do with her? What do we do with her? You see, that's the question, that's the issue here between Pharisees and Jesus. It's not, is it right to accuse people of sin when they sin? That's not the question. The question is, okay, we have someone that's been accused of sin, what do we do with them now? The law says that she should be stoned. Leviticus chapter 20, it said that the adulteress and the adulterer, uh uh-oh, we're missing somebody, aren't we? We're missing somebody. And that says a lot about the people that brought the woman. 
Because we see in verse number 6, again, I don't have this highlighted, but they were testing Him. Jesus knew their motive. Jesus knew, hey, this wasn't about the holiness of the law. Because if it was about the holiness of the law, you would have the man and the woman. And so Jesus understood that. And so Jesus begins to deal with these Pharisees in a way that will expose their hypocrisy. So when they continued asking Him, He raised Himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, He stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised Himself up and saw no one but the woman, He said to her, Woman, where are those thine accusers of yours? Has no one condemned thee? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. If there's three statements in the Bible that everybody knows, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, judge not that ye be not judged, and he that is without sin among you. Let him first cast the stone. We need to understand what this statement is about. This statement is not about Pharisees. You don't have the right to determine whether this woman has committed sin or not. This woman was taken in the very act. She was adultery. There's no disputing the judgment that this woman is a sinner. This is a statement not about judging the woman as a sinner or not. This is a statement against what are you going to do with her now? What are you going to do with her? The Pharisees wanted to stone her or they portrayed that. And so Jesus, understanding their hypocrisy, tells them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And all the world takes that statement to mean that none of us are perfect, so we shouldn't say that anyone is wrong in anything. And that's not what that means. The idea or the conversation about the woman being adulterous, an adulterer, The woman being wrong, that's not what's at stake here. What's at stake is, what are we going to do with her? And so Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. And so they drop their rocks and they walk off. Now while all of this conversation is going on between Jesus and the Pharisees, there's a woman standing over here. A woman that was taken in adultery. And you know what? She doesn't look at what's going on over there. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, great. And then just walks away and does as she pleases. Because after Jesus gets through talking to these Pharisees, He knows He's got a woman that's been taken in adultery over here. And so after He gets through with the Pharisees, He turns His attention to that woman and comes over and says, Woman, where are your accusers? Has anyone condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And He says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, she was a sinner. The question is, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, I'm not going to condemn you, but rather you go and sin no more. Did Jesus accept 
her behavior? Did Jesus accept her habit? Absolutely not. What we have to be careful of is to make sure that whenever Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, that He's actually saying, I condone you. He's not saying, I condone you. He's saying, I don't condemn you. You go and sin no more. And so what Jesus does is take this woman who was taken in adultery, who was a sinner, and treats her with mercy in order to work repentance in her life. And so whenever we look at that uh, passage, Jesus showed it's wrong to condemn others because we're all in need of mercy. And we shouldn't be in the condemning business. Jesus Himself said in John chapter 3, For I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. And that's exactly what Jesus illustrated then. He wasn't going to condemn her. He wanted to save her. And in saving people, you have to work to bring about repentance in their life. You don't save people by saying, it's okay. And that's not what Jesus said. He said, go. And sin no more. So does John chapter 8 teach that we need to be accepting of everyone's habits and beliefs and behaviors even though they're wrong? Absolutely not. What John chapter 8 says is that we shouldn't condemn people, but we need to hold people accountable for their sin and speak to them and tell them don't sin anymore. (coughs) The last one. Now on this last one, and elders, I'm not getting political whenever I put this up here. (laughs) This is a classic example, and I want to put this up here. Again, and this isn't a matter of being political or anything. But back a few years ago, I think it was about 2012, the President of our United States had an evolution of thought concerning same-gender marriage. And it was all over the news, how that previously in his campaign, he was against it back in 2008. But then after an evolution of thought in 2012, he came out in favor of it. And what I want to do is just look at his explanation as to why. Just, you know, what precipitated that change of thought? Because what we're going to see in his evolution of thought is a real-life example of what we're going to talk about whenever we talk about loving our neighbor as ourself. In an interview with ABC News, I think it was around May 9th, 2012, he was interviewed by Robin Roberts, I think was her name, says, I've just concluded that for me personally, it's important for me to go ahead and affirm that I think same-gender couples should be able to get married. He came out and affirmed that. Because his vice president came out about a week before and put him on the spot. So then he had to come out and, and put forth his view. Well, now in 2008, in an interview with, I think it was Rick Warren, he said he was against it. 2012, now he's for it. What changed your mind? In the end, the values that I care most deeply about and she, Mrs. Obama, cares most deeply about is how we treat other people. And, you know, I... You know, we are both practicing Christians, and obviously this position may be considered to put us at odds with the views of others. But, you know, when we think about our faith, 
The thing at root that we think about is not only Christ sacrificing Himself on our behalf, but it's also the golden rule. You know, treat others the way you would want to be treated. Now, after he makes this statement, the very next day, in an editorial in the USA Today, the editor writes this, Obama has frequently mentioned the golden rule or that general idea when speaking about how his faith shapes his policies. And he can point to chapter and verse to back up his views. Jesus twice invoked the golden rule in the Gospels in a phrase that is often rendered, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And Jesus is cited three times, boiling down all of God's law to what is known as the great commandment, a dual injunction to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and to love thy neighbor as thyself. The editorial continues. In those passages, Jesus is actually citing the Hebrew Scriptures. Specifically, Leviticus 19 and in verse 18, when God tells Moses, love your neighbor as yourself, and scholars of religion have seen say some version of the golden rule can be found in almost every religious tradition. Given today's religiously diverse context, this way of thinking about religion and spirituality provides a handy bridge across religious differences, said Nancy Ammerman, a sociologist of religion at Boston University. We're about finished. (laughs) Ammerman said she first became aware of the centrality of the Golden Rule precept as she studied American congregations in the 1990s, and more extensive surveys since then have underscored the premium that U.S. believers put on this live and let live tenet as opposed to any specific sectarian doctrine. So what we're saying in all of this is Mark chapter 12 verses 28 to 31 is whenever we encounter people that we disagree with on issues of morality or anything else, instead of being sectarian in our thinking, what we need to do is build a bridge to those people. Using Mark chapter 12, love thy neighbor as thyself. That's the book, chapter, and verse that our president used to evolve his thinking from being against same-gender marriage to being for same-gender marriage. Does Mark chapter 12 teach that? Well, if you'll go back to this statement right here. The golden rule, the commandment, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, does come from the Hebrew Scriptures, specifically Leviticus 19 and in verse 18. And you know, whenever you look in the Scriptures, whenever Jesus would say, love thy neighbor as thyself, He didn't go into an illustration of what that looked like. To love thy neighbor as thyself means to do this, 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 and this. Because the Hebrews, the Jews that he was writing to, they were familiar with Leviticus 19 and verse 18, and they understood what loving your neighbor looked like. Now, in our contemporary culture today, loving your neighbor simply means that you just leave them alone, you accept their habits, their beliefs, and their behaviors, but you don't say anything about it because we all want to love one another and live at peace. We put our own spin on what we think loving our neighbor actually is. 
But the thing is, in the Hebrew Scriptures, there was a definite explanation of what it looked like to love your neighbor. They weren't left into the left in the dark and they could just conjure up their own idea of what loving your neighbor looked like, but rather the Hebrew Scriptures were very specific, specific in what that looked like. So what we're going to do real quickly is go back to Leviticus 19 and we're going to see exactly how loving our neighbor is explained. And then you be the judge as to whether this fits in to the 21st century understanding of loving our neighbor. Going back to verse number 11. The law said, You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie one to another. So I don't want people to steal from me. I don't want people to deal falsely with me. I don't want people to lie to me. So since I don't want people to steal and lie and cheat me, then I'm not going to do that to my neighbor. I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. I wouldn't want people to swear to me falsely in the name of the Lord. I wouldn't want someone to make an oath in the name of the Lord and then not keep that oath. So I'm not going to do the same to my neighbor because I want to love my neighbor as myself. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. So in other words, I don't want my neighbor cheating me. I don't want them to rob me. And if I do some work for my neighbor, I want them to pay me in a timely manner. So I'm not going to cheat them and rob them and I'm going to pay them in a timely manner because I want to love my neighbor as myself. You shall not curse the deaf nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord. If I was deaf and I was blind, I wouldn't want people taking advantage of me by speaking cursings to me and putting stumbling blocks in front of me. So those people that are helpless, that are deaf and blind, I'm not going to do the same to them. Because I wouldn't want them to do that to me. I'm not going to do it to them. I want to love my neighbor as myself. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty in righteousness. You shall judge your neighbor. I want to be fair in justice. If ever I'm called uh, and I'm put in a position of judgment, I don't want to show partiality to the poor. I don't want to give those people that are poor special breaks just because they're poor. And I don't want to give people who are rich and mighty special breaks just because they're rich and mighty. I want to deal fairly with everyone because that's the way I would want to be dealt with. I want to love my neighbor as myself. Verse 16, You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. I wouldn't want people going around and being a talebearer about me. And I wouldn't want somebody taking a stand against me falsely in a court of law. So I'm not going to do that to them because I want to love my neighbor as myself. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's what loving your neighbor looks like. Let's go back to verse 17 though. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. I'm not going to hate my brother in my heart because I wouldn't want my brother to hate me in his heart. I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You know what? 
if I'm living in sin, if I'm violating the law, and I'm putting it myself at risk against the judgment of God, I'd want my neighbor to tell me. I wouldn't want my neighbor to live and let live. I wouldn't want that neighbor to allow sin to be upon me. I'd want that neighbor to come to me and rebuke me. The word rebuke that's used here means to correct, argue, convict, dispute, reason. You know, whenever people tell us today that Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, that's just their nice way of saying, shut up. Just shut up. When in fact, loving your neighbor as yourself, as described in the old law, means that we correct, we argue, we convict, we dispute, and we reason. When my neighbor is doing something wrong, and I'm arguing with them in a godly way, and I'm trying to reason with them, and I'm trying to convict them, you think of the people that you love the most in your life. If you saw them putting themselves in peril, either physical peril or spiritual peril, Do you think you love them because you keep your mouth shut? Or do you think you love them because you go when you try to help them? You see, that's what Jesus taught. And that's what Jesus meant. And all of those Hebrews that heard Jesus say, Love thy neighbor as thyself. They didn't sit there and cross their arms and say, Wow, I wonder what that means. They knew exactly what it meant. Because it was explained to them. In Leviticus 19. They had been hearing that all of their life as the law was read to them. And you know what? This statement, love your neighbor as yourself, in Leviticus 19 and in verse 18, that's the only place in the old Bible where that statement exists. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There's no other place in the old Bible to run to to try to get another description of what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself because that's the only time that's ever mentioned in the Old Testament. And so we see here from the hand of godly inspired writers what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. And loving our neighbor as ourself is not a passive acceptance of habits, beliefs, and behaviors that we know are contrary to God's will. But rather, it's a standing up and saying, you're wrong. It's a standing up and arguing and reasoning and convincing when people are wrong. So we're to love one another the way that Jesus teaches us. However, loving one another includes correcting your neighbor when they were wrong. So whenever we look at these tolerance passages of Jesus, this gives us some insight into just exactly what they're really saying. So if I'm told that Jesus sat and ate with publicans and sinners, then what I need to ask and you need to ask is, why did He do that? Why did He do that? Since you brought up the subject of Jesus, why don't we just go look and see what Jesus actually said Himself? He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. Well, since you brought that up, that's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. What did Jesus say to the adulterous woman? Go and sin no more. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, since you bring that up, what's it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, let's just turn back to the Bible where it explains what loving your neighbor as yourself really looks like. And so what we need to do is gird our minds with truth as we studied the other evening. That as the forces of evil advance upon us and try to convince us Christians that we need to be more tolerant like Jesus, accept that challenge. Accept that challenge. And then explain to them what the real tolerance of Jesus is about. Jesus loved those people. And because He loved them, He desired to shine His light and show them where they're wrong. And that's what we've got to have the courage to do also. So I hope as we look at these scriptures this evening, that it can help us to understand how that they're misapplied and again, misused by many. And again, we're not immune to that. You know, We know sometimes just enough about something to really not know anything about it at all. And that's, that's not just a, a, a world, that's a human problem. We're, we're that way, that whenever we're standing on something, then we'll take our bits and pieces to try to put together our foundation. But what we want to do is be faithful to the Scriptures and take the whole truth and be able to show that truth to people. That when Jesus ate with publicans and sinners, He was seeking repentance. That whenever Jesus was speaking to the woman taken in adultery, He didn't want her to go and sin anymore. And whenever Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself, He intended for us to rebuke and not bear sin on our neighbor. And so I hope as we've looked at these examples this evening that it can give us confidence in answering these people whenever we're confronted with this and to help us to feel confident that whenever we hear these statements, rather than being taken aback by them, we've got a confident response and a confident answer to show to people, we know our Jesus. We don't need you to preach to us about Jesus. We know our Jesus. And this is what our Jesus does. And yes, we will be more like Jesus. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian... You're in sin. And because we love our neighbor, we want to try to argue with you for a moment and convince you of your sin and to convince you you can't be saved in the condition that you're in. You're lost. You're separated from God. God is loving. God is merciful. God is compassionate. And because God is loving, merciful, and compassionate, He has provided for you a lamb, a sinless, spotless lamb, crucified on a cross by whose blood you can be made clean. And having your sins washed away in baptism, being made whole, being risen to Him with Him to walk in newness of life. Or if you are here tonight and you are a Christian, something we've studied, something we've said has touched your heart in a way that you can feel compelled to bring your burden to this congregation. They stand ready to help you as we stand and sing the song selected.